Hi, welcome to Chicana Code Switchers. Your co-hosts are Ariana and Patricia. We are both Chicanas in our master's program. We are also scholar practitioners in student affairs. This podcast is intended to provide insights into higher education with a focus on social justice and pláticas of student experiences. With that being said, let's start the show. Welcome to our very first episode of Chicana Code Switchers. My name is Ariana. I'm the second co-host. My pronouns are he, she, her, hers, ella, and I'm currently finishing my master's program in education with a concentration in higher education at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, which is also known as HUDSI. I was a former academic advisor at my alma mater, Sonoma State University, working with undocumented students through their Undocu Resource Center. I'm the first one in my family to graduate with a BA in sociology as a transfer student from Santa Rosa Junior College in Northern California. And my name is Patricia. My pronouns are she, her, hers, ella. And I'm currently a first-year graduate student working on my master's program in education leadership, specifically the higher education administration and leadership pathway, which is also abbreviated and mostly known for as HEAL at California State University, Fresno, which is mostly referred to everyone as Fresno State. I graduated last year from Sonoma State University with a BS in Business Administration and a BA in Chicano Latino Studies with a minor in Spanish. I'm also the first generation college student, um, an immigrant, and the first one in my family to go to a master's program. Great. So, Patricia, Let's uh, let's share with our audience how we came about this podcast and um, how we picked our name. So I've been wanting to do a podcast for a really long time. I just had no idea how to start it, how to do the audio thing. And like, um, so that was the intimidating part. But this semester, I'm actually taking a women's studies class and part of our assignment. And this is outside of my programs um, classes that I have to take. Um, and one of the assignments is to do a blog or a podcast. So this was like, okay, this is the opportunity. It's part of my grade. Um, and I was talking to some of my friends in our circle and I was like, oh, I would love like having us like be in different episodes. So for my women's studies class, we actually were supposed to focus on women of color and any aspect of our, um, lives that we wanted to cover, um, in that class, we're really looking into uh, what women of color experience specifically with like mothering, um, being um, mothers, what does that look like, especially in a social justice lens and reproductive justice um, and looking at in many ways in which different women of color, like Asian, Latinx, um, Black, mothers, Muslim, mothers, Native American um, experience oppression. And you'll find a lot of similarities. So I wanted to do something like this, but specifically with our experience as women of color in academia. So I was like, you know what, let me bring in my friend Ariana, because we're both in kind of like the same stage educationally wise, and also like career wise, we've experienced so many different things. So 
I asked Ariana and I was like, hey, would you like to be my uh, podcast co-host? And she agreed. So, Ariana, why did you decide to do this podcast? I think primarily for the reasons you mentioned, um, being the first ones in going through this educational journey, going learning how to maneuver the educational system and realizing that, yes, it's... Um, it's been a rewarding experience, but it hasn't come easily. And I believe that um, given my work experience with first generation um, undocumented, under- underrepresented students, they encountered similar challenges as they themselves were figuring out their educational pathway and careers. And so I wanted to share or use the space to share this our experiences about how we uh, manage um, this journey and and hopefully to make it easier for them um, to give advice and to give uh, share what we have learned thus far Uh, you know I don't consider myself an expert but I definitely can share about my experiences and I wanted to um, help others via this medium to um, not maybe not make the same mistakes as we have or not learn the hard way Um, just share my thoughts and hopefully someone out there can find them useful uh, as they themselves go through um, as they themselves meet their goals uh, whatever that may be yeah and you mentioned a lot of great things like um, I used to work um, as an admin and contributed to the Instagram page account Mujeres Chingonas and part of that work and I used to make a lot of memes there and just to express my frustration with um just the things like going on and like as Chicanas as um students as you know trying to work in higher ed um that's how I coped with a lot of things that were going on and just the amount of people mostly mujeres like really relating to so much about what our experiences was was like really like amazing to see unfortunately so much of it I'm like dang like a lot of us are going through this um but for me it was like a podcast was another like platform to expand more on like that experience and for me like um this year I'm a graduate assistant and working primarily as an advisor for undocumented students at Fresno State so I've just like seen a lot of students not able to know the ins and outs of like what is graduate school or not just graduate school or like what it can do for you but also like how do you navigate undergrad as an undergrad mm-hmm. and so for me I'm like now being in this program primarily focusing a lot of readings about higher education administration and leadership like I just want to have like other people like know more of this information now that I know this I'm like I want to share it with others and see if it can help in some way um, not just normalize talking about our traumas our experiences but also like share resources Mm -hmm. yeah you made a lot of good points um and I think that this will come in handy I think at some stage in someone's life um and as they themselves um go through this process my hope at least would be that they would then share their um, experiences and best advice to others that they them themselves would help the next person out there that may have all these questions mm-hmm. um, and I think that's why Ch- uh, Chicana Code Switchers is such a great um, podcast and I think it was such a great idea on your part um, 
because I think a lot of us have these questions, have these frustrations, have these um, doubts in our career paths, yet we don't know that someone else has already gone through it and how did they manage and how did they overcome whatever challenge they were facing. Um, and I think of people like people like uh, Michelle Obama, people out there like uh, Oprah, who are out there, you know, they're a name, they're a brand now, people know them, but we don't, like, it took a lot for them to get there, right? So I think um, there's a lot of, we don't necessarily need to just look up to them, but there's a lot of people in our lives who exemplify characteristics or goals, you know, that we aspire to be or to become. Of course. And I think one thing that I mentioned to you before, um, we're brainstorming like what would you what would what kind of content do we want to put in this podcast was like um I haven't seen podcasts that do it in this way in terms of like talking about the insights of higher ed I mean we briefly talk about certain things like I've seen other podcasts talk about the experiences of it but not in a way where it's actually admin scholars researchers talking about this experience and for me I see this experience in student affairs. I don't hear it much. And I think that was hard for me, especially working in student affairs at Sonoma State, allegedly. <laughs> it's like the um, the experience of seeing student affairs in such a different perspective and feeling that I didn't belong in student affairs and the way that I thought things should be done to help a lot of minoritized students, especially first-gen immigrant communities, um, racial minorities, you know, really looking at disabilities and mental health in just such a holistic way. And also I've seen just so much like the students that are most marginalized, just like been gaslighted so much about like, oh, that can't be, that can't happen. And just, I think that higher ed can be so much more innovative, much more student centered that it's not, and especially in like taking into account not just social justice as a performative way, but really looking at closing those equity gaps, really looking at closing those like academic gaps where I meet with students on probation and academically disqualified. And it just makes me so sad because they have internalized so much about how much they're not much of a college student. And I'm like, yes, you are. It's just that, you know, this it sucks that they haven't met the right people to show them that in that, that guidance or just simply like last week I met with a student who like just did not know how to study in specific classes. And instead of like addressing it, like they avoided it. And I'm like, no, you know, like it's having that support system that we both had um, and we're able to do all of this as undergrads. And now, from the mentors that we've gotten like how do you navigate and like do an academic hustle now as a grad student like how do you advocate for yourself and I think that's something that we were blessed you know like coming in and meeting really great scholars really great um, professors and now we want to see that in, in student affairs and so that's why it's really important for us to um, do that and then let's talk a little bit now like about like why did we choose the name Chicano Code Switchers? I think um, one of the what comes to mind when I was thinking of the name um, was that being an immigrant myself being born in Mexico City and having grown up in California um, I identify with that term because I'm not Mexican enough 
and I'm not American enough because one, I don't have my documentation. Um, but I feel like if I had been born here, um, I would embody or would connect or identify myself with what the term Chicana um, and code switching, because I think oftentimes we go into different spaces where we have to uh, accommodate ourselves to that setting um, where we have to where we have learned the lingo to speak to certain people. Um, yet when we're our friends or with people that we trust or, and care about, then we switch to just being ourselves, right? So I think we're often having to do this switching around um, in different settings, depending on what we know is expected of us. Um, so I think that is uh, something that I, I resonated with, um, given the academic, professional and personal spaces that I'm in. Yeah, and we even mentioned like how much we even code switch now with like our family. Like in certain spaces, like in some of our family members or even like conocidos, like we're like, oh, like can't talk about this, uh, can't do this. And so it's just like a constant performance that we put on. And um, for me, I think it's like now changing it into like having more autonomy, like code switchers for me is like now like taking into account like everything that I've learned, like how to navigate and all these things. But doing what my therapist said last year which was like really be okay and be unapologetically you we're now in different spaces you feel like you're not performing or putting a performance in certain spaces although that was amazing advice it was really hard you know in like a space that we were in at Sonoma State um it was hard because it's a predominantly historically white serving institution and these code switchings, I mean, I would love in, in, to end up like not being like, you know what, fuck it, you know, like, let, let me just be me and like do this. But it has a lot of repercussions in different spaces. And it doesn't mean the same way. Like here at Fresno State, it's a lot different where I feel a lot more seen. I feel a lot more, but also taking into account my privilege, like I'm able to do this. And my students, the ones that I serve, don't have that. So um, for me, it's like taking into code switchers as more of like, let me do it um, in a much more where I have control and power as opposed to forcing it on, upon me, like where I know how to navigate, but it doesn't feel so much more as a performance because as Chicanas, like we want to change a lot of different things and not just academically, you know, like in a holistic perspective, like politically, socially, and even in our own communities that where we go back to where academia has not been very present um where even graduate school level has not been present like for both of us we're very few um in my family that have gone even to that master's program or that master's level yeah most definitely I think um that applies to me too just um learning how to code switch but also learning how to like um help change these systems change the institution so that they are used to us more as well because we are one of um like you said we're a few out there in higher education um and there are a few of us out there trying to change how institutions respond to students like us so i think that's also part of the 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 dilemma that we're facing and at least that's my aspiration is to change that so that students don't have to do this performative um, in every aspect that of like of our lives at mm -hmm. work, school, 
events and in the classroom in our in our within our families because like how do we do all this like advocacy but also not lose ourselves because I think that is one of the biggest lessons that I made like when I was doing like student activism and advocacy like yes it's awesome like being you know shouting and like being very out there but it's also not very sustainable Mm -hmm. like you just have like so much backlash you experience so much um like barriers and people are like no you know like and so how do we do this code switching where yes we're not playing into respectability politics Mm -hmm. but also staying true to ourselves and how do we advocate for the students and get what we need Mm -hmm. um to change where it's not just change from a leader you know like once that leader leaves like okay change is gone you know like it's not it's not up to that one person to be there but it's like it's systemically now like it doesn't matter who is in that seat that advocacy and that change will still continue mm-hmm. exactly I think it's, it has to do with the culture of the educational setting that we're talking about that we find ourselves in it's it's changing that culture and I think it is possible once expectations are set once you know I think part of being in that leaders leadership position is about like in implementing change that is going to be long lasting whether that person stays or not and also like teaching other students Mm -hmm. from across like the whole campus of like how do you advocate for yourself and like also um get what you need because there's so many so many different like higher ed people like either faculty staff admin like take advantage the fact that most students especially first gen low-income minoritized students like don't know about how to like what the behind the scenes look like and how do you actually leverage certain things to ask for what you need because they it can happen it's just that they really take advantage of us mm-hmm. um and so um moving on into explaining because in our intro we mentioned about um, we're scholar practitioners, and we briefly mentioned that um, now, but I wanted to give a definition of it just in case anyone doesn't know. I didn't know about the term scholar practitioner until like two years ago, and I was like, oh, that's what it is. Um, I mentioned one of my one of my femtors, like, oh, I, I most of my work has been in student affairs, but also in McNair. I did a lot of research. I was like, well, who am I? Like, because in academia, it's just the academics and scholar in a, in, and then in student affairs, it's just student affairs. So I'm like, what is, first of all, student affairs? I had no idea that that was a thing because at Sonoma, there was actually no student affairs when I was a student coming in. So I had no idea what that was. Plus being first gen, like you just don't know a lot of things. And then you just say, oh, so that's what it's called. And then scholar, I had an idea of what it was publishing and stuff like that but learning about what it was to be both I was like oh now I really fit into those two because I did do research and I was in student affairs uh, mentoring a lot of students but putting those two together was really important for me Hmm. Um, just because now I felt like oh there was a term there was somewhere in the profession that I felt very um, identified as like my future career so um, scholar practitioner here's the definition Um, Scholar practitioner is an individual who aspires to study problems of practice in a more comprehensive and systemic way, allowing them to better understand the schools, districts, and other educational organizations, which which 
within which they work. Practitioner scholar is both about practice as an educator and your practice as a researcher. So Ariana, how does this scholar practitioner look like in the work that you do? Yeah, so currently I'm a, um, I'm in a, what am I? <laughs> I am the diversity and um, inclus- inclusive intern at Harvard Graduate School of Education. So I'm working in their Office of Student Affairs. So my focus within this role is to primarily help undocumented students, um, not just undocumented students, but bring awareness around what it means to be undocumented, to bring awareness around um, the, the different intersectionalities of being undocumented, being Black and undocumented, being Asian and undocumented, that it is not only a Latino issue, but also equipping educators, since that's the field and program that I'm in, with an understanding of, of uh, what kind of students fall in this category, not only students, but maybe like fellow colleagues um, and other people that they may encounter. Um, so for me, being a scholar practitioner means that I am not only uh, educating my colleagues and um, and even like uh, professors around what it means to be undocumented, but also um, providing them with more information around where they can th- themselves get more educated. Because what I give them is it's the beginning and we give them a certificate that says like they are knowledgeable in the basics of uh, what it means. They have an understanding of what it means to be undocumented um, and how to support students, but that they have made a commitment in learning more um, about the issue as they continue into their professional careers. So for me, it's like putting both together um, and it's giving them that, that um, the tools of where they can get more information. Should it be with United We Dream? Should it be with other organizations that provide these resources? Um, and so that's kind of like how I have been able to use the knowledge that I have, the role that I'm in to then equip others so that they can become more aware and um, advocate for students in this um, population. Yeah, and even looking at like, how does the scholarship, like a lot of the research inform our practice and how does our practice inform our research? Like for me and my job as a graduate assistant um, at the Dream Success Center at Fresno State, like I work with undocumented students. It's like in every single time I'm meeting with them in appointment, they're telling me a lot of things that, you know, in research, there's still so many gaps. And especially since um, I'm currently in the Central Valley, like there's just like so much that hasn't been written, so much gaps of like, you know, you think California is super progressive with all these like leading the way in which they're um, helping undocumented students in both like funding, like graduate school and undergrad and like laws that protect them and certain things. But in the Central Valley, like it's very conservative. So that those are the kind of gaps that I'm seeing because of the day-to-day things that I see with students and what I hear from them mm-hmm. and the things that I have to like troubleshoot together. And so, but then also the research in itself is informing me, okay, what is the current state of what's the patterns that we see? Cause it's not just, they're not just undocumented, you know, like they're, 
there's intersectional systems of oppression that some students experience. Like it's not going to be the same uh, working with an Asian undocumented student. It's not going to be the same working with men of color. They're transfer students. I mean, like there's just so many gaps in both the practice and the research that I see, especially when you're working with just this population that is completely just overlooked and they still experience like so many barriers that I think is not highlighted in both practice and scholarship. And so um, I think this is where we're in a very unique spot for us because Because student affairs really, I mean, one of their, um, what is it called? The competencies is social justice. Like, Student Affairs, they are in charge of, from NASPA, the National Organization for, like, Student Affairs work and stuff like that. They talk about social justice, but in our work, working with undocumented students, like, that's when it gets really tricky. Because, in, you know, you can theorize all these things mm-hmm. and talk about it, but it's really hard to put it into practice. And so I think this is where a lot of change could happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. I, I can see that um, in the different roles that I've had and how, you know, we say that we're about students, we say we're about social justice, but the actual actions behind though that those statements may look different or may not meet our expectations. And as students, especially first-generation students, like we've mentioned before, we don't know that we're being, that we're missing out on stuff or that. We don't know what we don't know. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we don't know what questions to ask or that we should be being provided with more. Or Um, even like as advisor, have you seen this happen? Because I've seen other advisors do like this. They ask you, like they have this like check-in with one-on-one students and they're like, um, so how are you doing? And then like really open-ended. And I'm just like, no, like if you had read scholarship in terms of like, what do these students, especially if they have like um, the first gen, experience the low income um students without parents and like all these like other things like you would know like you don't just come in and like say that like you want to address and see like at the end of that appointment we need to give them resources we need to point them out in certain places Um, we need to follow up with them like continuous in touch Mm -hmm. and not only that but it's also like they should be leaving okay now I know exactly what those barriers are because you've been you told them okay, here's the gaps, here's the checkpoints, here's the early interventions, but also explain to them, like, how does financial aid work? Because most of us don't know that. Mm-hmm. But what is what do most of the advisors do? They just do a basic ass, like, checklist, like, oh, your classes are registered, this and that. But there's, like, no holistic, um, ex- like, addressing holistically the student and what do they need? Because we know what is out there? What are the resources? What are the policies? But how do we inform that to the student where it's much more accessible? Because even the definition scholar practitioner is like inaccessible to most. But like for me, what really makes a huge difference is as a scholar practitioner and as a Chicana, like I really want to um, make higher ed more accessible to everyone. There's no question about you deserve this or you don't it's more of like if you have if you would want to improve which is for us in our communities it, higher ed is like one of the 
and like one of the ways in which we can really move up socioeconomically and become civically engaged and really change a lot of things. Like our perspectives, our experiences are needed in academia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think it's also due to lack of training. If I think of back at my position as an academic advisor, we what we focused on, at least the training that I got, was around academics. It was around classes, requirements, um, what to do if a student, you know, bec- gets on probation, disqualified, like what to do with that process, what forms to fill out. And it's, it's very technical. It, it was very um, limited to just acad- looking at the academic profile of the student. It wasn't <laughs> about building rapport. It wasn't about... Um, asking more specific questions about their progress it's not about like it wasn't anything about like what was challenging for them Um, and students didn't know also didn't know what they could ask right they thought you know we were supposed to help them get their classes help them get their schedules and so there's a lot of I think there's a disconnect right there Um, and I think there needs to be more of, of a more holistic training across ethnicities, across advisors who may not be first gen and and people of color. There needs to be an understanding of how to work with students from underrepresented backgrounds. Um, And I think that's why why we we can hint at these things or we can catch these things because of our own personal experiences and backgrounds that we were, were able to then frame these questions. But not everyone can do that because not everyone has that experience. So therefore there needs to be um, more intentionality or that- even like those uh, advisors that are Christian like people of color in general like I th- especially at Fresno State there's like so many more advisors but they also like los joden like they really do try to limit them and I think there's just like this deficit way of looking at the student where they're like oh no they're like especially I see this in EOP where it's like oh no like um, they just like I don't think they're ready to write a personal statement. And I'm like, yo, like they need to know how to write their own story. They need to write a personal statement because if they want scholarships, if they want to apply to graduate school, if they want fellowships, internships, they need to know how to tell their story. Mm -hmm. And that is something that I think second year students should be able to do. And a lot of them are like, no, like, like not mentoring even graduate school. They just are not there yet. And I'm like, first of all, it's not up to you to decide it for them. Mm-hmm. it's you to provide that like just the information the opportunities here's what the paths that you can take the student will end up like deciding whether or not they take it but that's their own thing but I think it's also encouraging them because I've seen a lot of like um, students who are not first gen um, back at uh, Sonoma where the professors I mean I was in very white spaces in business so like professors would handpick them and be like you can do it like you're capable of just because they showed a lot of like these like things that a good student should but I'm like for me I think all students have the potential of doing them mm-hmm. not seeing them as a deficit like I every student that I meet I'm like you're great you're exceptional like let's look at this like okay not in the terms of what you're lacking but it's like okay here's where you're at and I think you have the potential to do better Let's mm-hmm. get you the right people, the right mentorship, the right resources to get you there. Mm-hmm. And you decide what you do with it, right? But I don't want you to decide to not do things just because you don't know about them. Like, exactly. that breaks my heart, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. 
even like looking at my intake survey when I meet with PDQ students I'm here like okay let's like let me find out where you know like I'm here like taking a whole assessment you know like okay like I know you you made a mistake but some students just don't know the policies of what it means to be on probation and they like internalize that like oh I'm like a really bad student or I can't do it and I'm like now both of us as advisors we see students and I'm like oh man I just wish they were able to talk about this and how normal it is to fail a class I mean I failed like three classes and I still made it to grad school and personally graduate school right now is a lot easier than undergrad Mm -hmm. but I mean we can talk a lot more like later on in episode why you know (laughs) Mm -hmm. exactly um but yeah I think this is um this is a great way to give um give an idea of what kind of topics conversations we'll be having as we continue on with this podcast, um, issues that come up, things that we would do different. I know that, you know, for example, with your example, like people may say that, well, we don't have all of the time. We're restricted to 20 minute meetings or with the students, or we don't, maybe the student comes in for one thing and leaves with another issue or like it brings up something else. So like we run out of time. So I I know that these things come up. um, Mm -hmm. And we can dive into those things more as we continue the conversations, as we focus on certain topics, but just to give people a sense of what we'll be covering. Like, this is a great beginning, I think, um, as to the the common um, experiences that we both hold and, like, what we would like to highlight and what we would like to share as best practices or whatever it is that we think is vital for for us to share. Yeah, and it's definitely, like, a place where, if any of our listeners like have like a specific thing that you want to like learn or, or make a comment about certain things, like this would be like an awesome opportunity to like have a further discussion on it in other episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's move on to our check-in. So um, kind of talking about what um, we want to start in every episode and uh, we want to, come in together with a check-in and the check-in we really want to focus on like what are something that we're grateful for from like this previous week or like a theme that's coming around and then what what are we excited about mm-hmm. yeah let's start. <laughs> let's start um I think I'm grateful this week um with regards to my job I am putting on some programming for the month of April um, not intentionally trying to do everything in April, but it is the last month we have before we all graduate and move on with our lives. <laughs> um, but basically, um, I was able to connect with, basically, I'm planning three events around undocumented students. And so, or the undocumented conversation, we're bringing in a speaker on April 1st, um, Daniel Arenas, who is the co-founder of Dream in Mexico. He was here undocumented for 14 years and went back uh, to Mexico. Now he holds a visa. So now we're bringing him back to talk about that experience and what prompted him to create this organization. Um, So that's April 4th. Um, On April 1st, we want to have this event called uh, Undocumented in Black, Race and Justice in America. And basically partnering with uh, the Black Student Union here at Harvard um, as a purposely so that we can bring in other types of um, people into this conversation because I think it's important to, 
to talk about the intersectionality of being undocumented and black. Um, and so I was, I connected with Danea Joseph. We had a conversation. She's on board to coming. Um, basic, I have this date set because Dr. West, Dr. Cornell West, uh, agreed to do it and that he, he has very limited time. So, um, that's the date that he gave us. So we're working around his schedule. Um, <laughs> so things are coming along. Um, and, uh, one of my friends has the contact to 21 Savage who was recently in the news and because he was undocumented, um, got detained he's a famous singer rapper and um i'm waiting to hear back but basically i told my friend that if we can get him that would be amazing oh my gosh like yeah you can like (laughs) tune me in into these things yeah so we're i mean i know that he wants to bring awareness around his unfair uh detainment uh with ice and so hopefully an experience you know like an experience went through Exactly. And hopefully he'll want to use, you know, Harvard as his stage to bring attention to this matter. Um, And also, like, the following Monday, we're looking at uh, doing an event around Jin Park, uh, who's the first documented um, Rhodes Scholar recipient um, to go study in Oxford. But then it comes down to not having advanced parole to be able to do that. So he's trying Mm -hmm. to figure that out. And so given that he's at Harvard College as an undergrad, he just graduated, I believe, this past December, but uh, he's close enough, and he's also represents that other side of who an undocumented person is that people don't often think about as Asian, uh, of Asians uh, as being undocumented or, like, not having um, documentation in the U.S., so I would like to use his uh, his story to highlight that perspective, so, like, those things are happening this year, this, this, those things are happening this semester, I got good news this week, and so I'm really grateful for like the what is it the progress that I'm that we're making on the these three different events. That's so awesome, I'm and so excited. I'm excited <laughs> about them all. If I'm able to pull them off, that would be amazing. Oh my gosh, um, that's awesome. That's like always such a great feeling, like when you have like really cool people coming into like um campus and like highlighting like really great like stories where it com- like it complicates and it um has a much more nuanced like like story background and, and stuff like that about like especially undocumented immigration where like Latinxs mm-hmm. are like hyper visible mm-hmm. especially Mexicans um so I'm excited for you friend thank you what about you so, um, this week, a lot of things have happened. Um, I'm really grateful because before recording to this podcast, I was uh, talking to my mom. And so it's just like amazing to just like, um, have like this different relationship with my mom, which is a lot more closer. And just like this women's studies class, like that's another thing that I'm really grateful for is just like giving me like such a great perspective of like what women of color mothers deal with. And so, um, like growing up like I definitely had this like feeling like oh I don't want to be like my mom like oh my gosh like just like this like very white feminist like mm. rejection of my own mother and just like this anger that I held from a lot of things that um, she did and didn't do like us growing up and that was an adult and um, much older wiser 
and have like this opportunity to just learn about like what their experiences because I didn't have the same growing up as her so like I definitely was like much more had more opportunities going into like focusing on myself focusing on like not having to take care and of siblings of um focusing on my education my career and so for me like we had like these just huge gaps with the two of us just because she was a lot more submissive and just like played a lot of like really accepting a lot of patriarchal things and then for me who I was like always rejecting that growing up and so now I think like we've come into this like really nice through Chicano studies too like an undergrad Mm -hmm. just like a it opened a lot of like dialogue and for her to understand me and me to understand her and our experiences so like now we're able to talk about like how do you stand up how do you advocate within our own family so we've had like multiple like family experiences currently where I'm just like oh my gosh like we're on the same page now, you know, like mm. he has a better understanding of like the importance of boundaries, the importance of standing up for yourself, the importance of um, being apologetically you and not being afraid to be a feminist, you know, like within our family. So it's been incredible. And it's been just like a, it just speaks to a lot of like the growth of both of us uh, in our, uh, relación, like, being mended and like mejorandose every single time you know mm-hmm. and so uh that has I've been just like grateful for that and then it's just like I'm excited about this podcast just because it's like a dream come <laughs> true <laughs> yes and I also get to talk to you because you're in the east coast so um it's just really cool to connect with friends just because how we were mentioning last week like we just think this like our way of doing student affairs and our work and scholarship is just so different that sometimes it's hard to like get people to like have that same vision and understand you without you having to explain everything. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's just really cool to have like an hour to do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Awesome. Yay. So, um, let's see, we are going to then, do our education we're going to talk about our educational journeys briefly or yes so um part of this other episode too is just like briefly like we're going to do just like a mini interview session uh with each other um to talk about our educational journey like how did we get to where we're at and um talk about our stories so do you want to start yeah so as I mentioned earlier, I um, originally from Mexico City. I grew up in Northern California. I also um, was brought, well, not also, but I was brought in, um, in to Northern California when I was four. So I was very young. And I honestly don't, don't remember me wanting to pursue school, like, since I was little. Like, it wasn't something that I... Um, wanted to do that just naturally I think it's something that I learned that I wanted to do as I progressed through the school years um I also think that um having different people in my life encourage me and support me and believe in me made a difference in my life I think in high school I I often learned what I needed to do uh from other people 
from my peers who were like in sports, who were getting good grades, who were uh, pushing themselves um, academically. And so I said, well, if I want to go to college, like that was something that I wanted to do for myself, not something that my parents instilled in me. Um, necessarily directly saying you have to go to college, but more like, oh, this is something I want to do because I want to break the cycle, right? So my um, my journey really began in high school when I started taking all the required courses so that I could be uh, eligible for a four-year institution. Um, and I took all the requirements, took the, PS, uh, the SAT, um, and eventually... Even though I got into Sonoma State University and Dominican University out of high school, um, given the little knowledge that I had at the time about universities, um, my uncle actually recommended me to go to Santa Rosa Junior College, which is where I ended up going because it saved me money during the first two years of my educational career. Uh, It was the same. Basically, I would meet the same requirements in two years within half the price. Um, and I got scholarships because I did good, have good grades and I was involved in my school. Uh, I played soccer. I, um, what else did I do? Like, I, I think I was often um, speaking up or sharing or pushing somewhat in a way um, within the parameters that I, um, that I knew at the time, um, advocating for, for things to happen at my school. And then I went to Santa Rosa Junior College, finished in two years, which is not very common. Um, But I did take the entrance exam for math twice because I didn't get in, you know, I didn't get the score that I wanted the first time. Um, So that really helped to be at the college level math and English that then didn't delay me uh, finishing in two years. I took summer, spring and fall classes. I transferred to Sonoma State because it was convenient. It was close to home. I could still live with my parents. So then um, that's mainly why I applied there. Um, And then in another two years, finished with my degree in sociology. I said I was going to take a year off and that turned into six years because then I started working and uh, being able to um, use my degree for something that I loved. Um, And that then led for me to work at Sonoma State as an academic advisor uh, in the School of Science and Technology for undeclared students, the Andaku Research Center. I, you know, I, I got more experience that then uh, solidified the fact that I wanted to work in higher ed. Um, and that then led me to apply to a, a graduate school program. Uh, mostly it was PhD programs, but you know, I'll share that another time. Um, that would be her rejection. <laughs> being rejected. But, you know, with every, um, I think with every door that closes, another one opens. And I'm a great believer in that. And then I got into Harvard's Graduate School of Education program, master's program, nine months in and out. So I think things worked out in the end. And I'm grateful for the opportunity of being here and being you know, being able to represent my undocumented community um, and other Latinas and just being in the space that is such a privileged space for a lot of people. So that's, that's me in a, in a, in a nutshell. nutshell. (laughs) So um, I'm going to just like ask you the questions first. Um, That way um, 
um I think from your story it was just like there's just like so many challenges um which one do you feel was like the biggest challenge um like the hardest one for you um and then how did you like what did you learn from that Mm. I think for me it was I I mean there's there were a lot of different challenges through my uh, but like looking back reflectively like (laughs) um I know we like go through so many different things so many challenges I think that moment but now looking back yeah I think it was coming with the acceptance that I didn't have to follow a straight path um because I was trying to compare myself with other classmates of mine that were getting into Berkeley that were you know they knew from the beginning what they wanted to do um they wanted to be veterinarians or whatever so they knew that they needed to get their master's in a specific field but for me it was a lot of discovering myself discovering myself not only as uh, an individual and my interest and my passion but switching it from following what I thought I needed to do in order to be able to make make it work because as an undocumented person back then before 2012 I couldn't work so the reason I was pursuing English as my major at Santa Rosa Junior College was because I was going to then be a private tutor and be able to then work under the table or whatever Mm -hmm. Um, but that switch once I got deferred action for childhood arrivals which is when I realized that I when I learned about sociology, when I learned that that was something I was really passionate about, about, and I always heard that, but I didn't necessarily understand that. And then realizing that, yeah, I said I was going to take a year break, but that then turned into six years. And that's okay. Because although it took years for me to realize what my next step was going to be, it's not like I wasted that time. I think I took you know, life led me to meet people, amazing people that then helped me define what that path would be. And I don't think I would be here had I not taken that longer way. You know, like there's just no right or wrong way. It's just like coming to terms with that was, I think, the most challenging for me um, because, you know, I, I wanted to be in a different place at this point. But I looking back now, I don't regret where I'm at now. And I think it's, you speak on a lot about like how, like there's these like expectations of like us stereotypically like not doing great. And so like, you're always like wanting to overcompensate and be like, no. And then when you fit into that, like negative stereotype, like like, taking breaks, going to community college first Mm -hmm. and all these things, like you start being like, oh shit, you know, like, ah, you know, like all this like frustration. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it's amazing. Like. I think when I work with students, it's like letting them know, like, it's your own journey. And it makes sense why we take this long. You know, like, it's like, what do you, we have like this high expectation of like, we got to do it all. But it's like, also, we have to forgive ourselves and give us like ourselves some like breathing room because we can't like take on our shoulders, you know, changing all these systems that were been here for hundreds of years and just like do it overnight, you know? Exactly. And I think now being in this graduate school program and learning about the history of higher education, like a lot of things make sense. Mm -hmm. And it's like being the first ones, I think we're trying to do a lot with little knowledge. You know, we don't have parents who went to college who have done this before, who have gone through these loops and have learned from it that 
then can, they can then pass on these lessons to us. We're doing all of that and trying to find ourselves and trying to break the systems or break stereotypes. You know, we're trying to make changes all at once. So it's, it makes sense that it takes longer, but I think what matters, and I think I remember telling my students this is that it doesn't matter how long it takes you. What matters is your goal that you obtain your goal, whatever that is, you know, and I think in the end, if you're happy and satisfied and fulfilled and like, that's fine. Um, and, and, and we all have different paths. And like I said, at the beginning, my additional layer of a challenge was that I was undocumented. So certain things that I could have done that could have gotten me somewhere sooner, I wasn't able to do because I didn't have that social security number that would allow me to enter a research program, you know, things like that, or allowed me to work a year earlier to gain that experience, right? So I think it's, it's okay to take longer if in the end you're going to be satisfied with yourself and satisfied that you knocked on all the doors prior to committing. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, one last question. What is something that you're most proud of through this journey? Mm. I think the one, I mean, there's lots of things I'm proud of, but I think <laughs> the one thing that I would say is, is just being able to prove to myself that I am capable of doing things and being in this space. I think when I was working at Sonoma State and being the only person, a woman of color in my department, really highlighted the, the importance of me being there. Even though I was the only one, I think just me being there for the, the students that I, you know, that I was able to help, the students that I was able to represent whatever it is that they saw me as I think that was one of the proudest things as an undocumented Mexican woman in a higher education institution like that that was predominantly white being able to be in that space when I technically wasn't supposed to I think that was one of the proudest moments for me and now being here I think that trained me to not being here at Harvard and again being one of the few women of color um, advocating for these issues when there aren't a lot of students who are undocumented, but there's a lot of educators who will th- who will then impact other undocumented students. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing. Yeah. So my turn. Yes. Okay. So the first question uh, again, it would be the how. Uh, what is one of the challenge biggest challenges that you? Maybe talk about your education journey and then talk about a challenge that you faced. Okay. So I was born in Jalisco, Mexico, and my parents um, and all their family actually um, were born and raised in Michoacan. So when my parents um, decided to marry, they both moved into Jalisco, and that's when they had their older sister and then later on me. But for the majority of my growing up, in my two years that I was still in Mexico and I was um, grew up there, I grew up without my dad. So uh, my dad, but even before he um, decided to marry my mom, he at an early age was going um, to the U.S. Um, his one of his brothers was able to um, get him permanent residency to work in the fields in. Um, California. So he first started in, I believe, Napa, 
um, in Sonoma County area, working in different places, um, primarily as a vineyard worker. And so my parents decided, like, because we were both far away, my mom actually told him, like, I don't want to live the same experience as my own um, parents because her dad was also absentee and was working in the U.S. So um, she's like, let's get together. So my dad actually submitted all the paperwork for us to um, be able to um, all live in Napa. So once we um, were approved, um, we flew to the U.S. when I was two and a half years old. Um, I do remember the flight still. Um it was very traumatic. So it was like a chicken with gravy. And I threw that up in the airplane because it was disgusting. That was like my mm-hmm. first American meal. <laughs> and I was like, because this is chingaderas. Anyway, so that was my last question. And um, from then on, I went to kinder in, in the U.S. And then I did fifth grade. Um, my kinder teacher was actually, actually a Latina. And she was... Um, able to communicate really well with my mom. I mean, it was incredible because we would take the bus and everything. My mom didn't know a lot of English. So like growing up, I was like, I didn't know that I knew English because I um, learned English through like cartoons and like just hearing it around. And so once my mom figured out that I was, that I was actually new English because I didn't know the difference. Um, I was able to help her out and like tell her like, what are certain things in English? And half a second grade my grandma from my dad's side um had a stroke and so we during December we left school early and we drove down to Mexico and every December we would always go during winter break back because my dad just like it was that connection and that wanting to be like still with a family and so um when that happened um my parents were going through like financially a lot of hardships so we ended up staying a year and a half, and so I was enrolled in a private Catholic school. Um, my parents decided that because they're like, well, they went through the public school system in Mexico, and they're like, no, we should put you in a private just because you'll be in a better position. There was going to be more resources, and it was a hard struggle. Like, every day, I'd be crying because I felt so dumb. Like, math. Uh, math they were so advanced. I was in second grade adding a few numbers barely, and they were already multiplying. So um, catching up was really hard. And I think that was like the hardest one, like reflecting back just because it was a cultural shock. Like they thought I was American and I was like, well, I was born in Mexico. Like, what is this? You know, like, and then the bullying was just like super blatant. Um, Plus I was a girl. So like, they was just like learning how to be a, a Mexicana in Mexico is like so different. Uh, there's just like so many cultural expectations. Um, there's just so many rules um, that I didn't know about. And so um, my mom had talked to my maestra and she was in maternity leave because she was, she just recently had her baby and um, she ended up tutoring me um, after school every day in her house. And so that's how I was able to catch up. And then even during summer, I had another tutor that my aunt would take my um, cousins to, uh, to just get ahead for them. And then for me, it was to catch up. So that really helped. And towards the end of my third year, um, the, the thing that I was like really good at was dance. 
So that's where I felt like the most comfortable. Mm -hmm. Academics was a hard thing for me to be. But if it weren't for my mom being proactive and intervening and saying, no, tienes que hacer la tarea, like, this is important. You can do it. Although she was, both of us would go head to head because I was just very terca. And so um, from then, from that experience, I just learned that, like, you're able to adapt and do actually able to do it because I thought I was like, no, I'm dumb. I'm like, not going to do it. And so just like with the right resources, with the right support, you can achieve anything. Um, and so at the end of that third year, I was the top third student in my mm-hmm. class. So for me, it was like such a huge accomplishment and it's just a testimony of like, if my parents, the resiliency of my parents and it was hard because I grew up for quite some time without my dad so just like as a little kid and so once we were both reunited we came back to the U.S. and I had to adapt again the culture change and the culture shock in a different elementary school um and back into English so I was really highly skilled in math but English was like going down so I was so used to like Spanish and writing and like the grammatica, literatura and all that stuff. Like I was really good. And then in English, I was like, shit, what is a main idea? I didn't know what a main idea was. Like I felt so dumb that and I needed glasses so I couldn't see. (laughs) (laughs) So once I was able to get glasses and everything and tutoring again, um, I was able to catch up. And so from then on, like that was like something that was like really helpful. Um, Unfortunately, from then on, my mom wasn't able to step in as much. So (laughs) It was up to me to learn where to get those resources. Um, my sister, like once she got into high school, she joined Upperbound. Mm-hmm. And that for me was a huge change because I was introduced to Chicana literature. I was introduced to um, Latinx's. Both of our instructors were uh, working on their PhDs. So I was like, what the hell is that? And also like at that moment, it didn't like click that I could be that Mm. like for me it was the moment of like oh there they exist I just didn't think I could do it so but I was introduced earlier on of like Latinxes in academia and once I learned about Chicano studies I really wanted to do it I was the AP honors track kid (laughs) mostly quiet in those classes because I just wanted to become invisible basically and um, from that experience, it was like I found that Upper Bound was a safe space for me to be who I was in academics. Just because in everything else, I just like had to hide who I was just so I just didn't brought attention or discrimination towards me. Because, I mean, I was in a school where it was like vineyard owning children, you know, like high wealth just very conservative um really bully so it was just kind of gave me flashbacks of like my time in Mexico in school and so I was just like just stay quiet don't say anything um and I would have always gave B's in essays just because I didn't know what the word rhetoric was so um that was the hard part adapting to that but in upper bound that's with a space where I felt really like embraced all of me and I found other people who were in the same place because in my AP honors classes, it was mostly white kids and very few POCs. And so in Upper Bound, it was all of us mostly from the same immigrant, vineyard working, low income 
families um, that were into academics. I was like, they're my nerds, you know, (laughs) because I always felt kind of ashamed of being nerdy and um, liking sports. Like I, I did not have a click at all in high school. I was like hanging out with drama kids. I was hanging out with um, the athletic people, student government, not really student government, but like the people involved in clubs and stuff like that. Um, And I just didn't have a spot. So once I was in Upper Bound, I felt very embraced um, and felt that I could do this. And they gave us more of the insight of like, what is the college application process? And so I chose to go to Sonoma State because it was close and I got rejected from UC Davis. So my heart was broken. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, my last, my English teacher, my AP English teacher um, was blatantly like, just like so discriminatory and just like give me a D in my AP class. So that just like automatically I was like not able to go to, um, you can fail in other classes except your English class. So um that was for me like automatic you won't go to UC or be even considered so that's why I was devastated I did get into Mills College but I didn't know how to pay or fund or how like um like scholarships worked or you know funding or like all that stuff worked so like I probably could have made it just because I was low income, gotten it paid, but I had no clue how to get that done. And I was like, I'm not going to tell my dad like to pay $60,000. Plus my older sister was going to UC Davis and she was in her last year. So um, it was just not possible. And um, there was just like so much burden in my own family that I had to learn how to like know all of this. And so I just, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go to Sonoma State like angrily I was in like still in orientation I was like fuck this shit I hate this <laughs> and I wanted to transfer out like after my first year I just felt so isolated so not welcomed the the name first gen or the term first gen I had never heard it before mm. um they never mentioned it it was until like my fourth year that they finally like mentioned something about supporting first gen I was like oh that was my experience mm. <laughs> I was like oh that makes sense <laughs> And my second year, um, I had a my first Chicano studies class and the professor asked me like, have you thought about graduate school? And I was like, I felt kind of ashamed because I was just like, I know I feel like I should be saying yes, but I have no clue what that is. And I mean, I barely made it to undergrad, so I have no clue what the hell. And he's like, and I was just like, uh, and so he saw my hesitation and he was like, you know what? You should check out McNair Scholars. And I was like, what's that and then he's like it's the trio program I was like oh like upper bound (laughs) yeah kind of like that you should talk to Mariana uh, and go talk to her and then I looked her up and then I was like holy shit she's a Latina the first Latina I had met who wrote in her bio she was first gen I don't know what that meant um she was an immigrant she was studying an education she was getting her doctorate and she was doing things that I'm like I want to do that because my intention with majoring in both business and Chicano Latino studies with a minor in Spanish was to start my own nonprofit and help a lot more students access what I had in Upper Bound mm-hmm. and where it hadn't limited in terms of income status or anything like that's what I wanted um and to open it up for just people to get more access to all this like knowledge that like it's very exclusive 
And I, in a youth conference, I met this woman who said that she wished she had majored in business because now as a director, she has to know all these things. So for me, I was like, oh, yeah, totally. I'm going to do that. I hated the pre-business part. Um, but now reflecting back, it makes so much more sense now as hopefully going into admin work. Um, it, unfortunately, schools are run like a business, you know. Mm-hmm. And so um, knowing that lingo helped me a lot. And um I was also um, thinking about um, what my next steps were. Um, And so when I got into McNair, I had no idea. I was just like, it sounds like a great deal. (laughs) Let me just like sign up and then lo averigamos después, you know? And that's what got me into this like whole scholar work and applying to graduate school. Like if it weren't for McNair, I would have no clue what it is. And the the mentorship of Mariana was so helpful in me, like really identifying how do you further navigate it? Um, even my mentor in, she was the chair back then of um, Chicano Latino Studies. I met her since my freshman year just because I, I had an English class assignment mm. and I interviewed her about like, what are the writing expectations and stuff like that? And I had no clue. If it weren't for that professor either, I would have not approached and like decided to major in Chicano Studies just because I was so afraid of really being myself and confronting the fact that I loved ethnic studies and I was just scared that people were going to judge me just because I felt that a lot in my honors classes um and once I met um we call her she was the first one from the get-go like I met and I was with her for like until I graduated uh, five years later and so from that experience that's how I applied to graduate school and we both met while I was planning um, the first North Bay Women of Color Conference at Sonoma State. And that's where we, like, we both had met where, and I was still a student and you were an undeclared advisor at that moment. And from then on, you mentioned to me that you wanted to apply to graduate school. And I was just like, do it, Muhead. Like, <laughs> and most of our, my friends uh, that I met through Chicano Studies that were both in McNair and Chicano Latino Studies, like, um, uh, they had already left and graduated. So I was like, I didn't have another buddy to apply <laughs> to graduate school with. Um, and so we both applied to graduate school at the same time. And we both afterwards went out to get drinks. And it was the best moment of our lives. <laughs> After that application process. Yeah. I mostly PhDs thinking I was going to get into PhD. Mm-hmm. And then I got all the rejection. And so that's when I like last minute applied to two master's programs because I had no energy to do more than that um and money um if it weren't for my if it weren't for profile paying for those two CSU apps um mm. I mean bless her heart and I got into both so I was just like see sí, lo que la diferencia is like when you apply you may get all these rejections from one side but once you follow the next step like all these acceptances kept coming and so since then, I've been at Fresno State. Um, this whole, it's been a semester and a half almost. And it's made a huge difference now being mm-hmm. in graduate school. That is amazing. Um, thank you for sharing your story. I can definitely see the connection as to why um, you like how you got to be who you are now, given your earlier experiences, your early, earlier childhood experiences. I think that definitely had an impact on you as a person and on your um, 
and what you were striving for and the challenges that you overcame. Um, but looking back now, like what would you say is one of your proudest moments? I think my proudest moment was the first time I told my story to a huge, large audience. Mm. And, um, I had not been able to have a platform to be really authentically me in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, only my friends knew snippets, but I think the general, I think the, the thing that I found it harder was telling my story to an audience that I didn't know would receive my message just because of just the bullying I've seen in like academics <laughs> earlier on. Um, and I was picked on top of other like higher like students who had like better GPAs or whatever. And so I was one of the four chosen uh, student speakers, commencement speakers for high school. And so I was like, I made my speech and I Mm -hmm. talked a lot about like my experience being an immigrant and going back and forth from Mexico and how complex it was. Um, Just living in like a working class family and trying to go into like higher ed and like always having to like just all these challenges of adapting um of not finding a home and it's like home is because I would constantly be moving to um in different places and so um when I told my story I was just like and I said it both in English and Spanish so it was such a proud moment because my grandma was able to be there and like listen to it and Mm -hmm. I even had like other people come up from like different families that would like later on say like such a beautiful story like I'm so glad like there are people like you going like it's just like it's like those like although you're in the moment feel so like you're up against a lot of things you're inspiring others to like continue you know either having their grandchildren go to college or like it's possible like you're just opening up like the possibilities of what we can do and so I think that was my proudest moment like retrospectively like that was like that set the tone for me for college of like, mm-hmm. tell your story, you know, not to everyone, not everyone deserves your story, but like <laughs> definitely like you can be an, an, an inspiration, although we face so much challenges in between. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's true. And I think those challenges shape, definitely shape who we become and, and what we hope for others not to experience or what we hope to ease for others um because like you said not everyone deserves to hear our stories um and also not everyone should go through our ch- same challenges um if we can save them some time or some stress or some difficulty um as they themselves aspire to do their own things yeah, yeah. so I think this should be a wrap up of our first episode. Um, mm-hmm. Thank you everyone for listening. And mm-hmm. thank you, Ariana, for joining us in like this journey of. Um, <laughs> for and, sure. Uh, we'll definitely continue a lot of these conversations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Please follow us on Instagram. Um, it's Chicana Code Switchers. And also on Twitter, X Code Switchers. Yes, most definitely. And and just know that this is just to give context about our podcast, about how it came to be, about who your podcast co-hosts are. And um, we will definitely be diving into more topics, bringing in more people and just continuing the conversation. And uh, we also have an email. So we'll then 
provide that email. So if any questions come up or ideas for future topics or uh, podcast, um, we are open to that as well. Yeah. And um, in the future, we do want to incorporate a lot more like shout outs to if you have any conferences coming up mm-hmm. um, or any like POC uh, businesses that we want to shout out or something like definitely let us know um, our email is chicana code switchers at gmail.com awesome wonderful well from patricia and i we are very thankful and honored to have had some of your time today to uh, listen to us and please spread the word um, share us and let your friends know about about chicana code switchers insights into higher ed we're excited that we have launched it and are, I think, ultimately more excited to see what where we go and what comes to be in the next few months. Thank you so much. And that concludes our first episode. Awesome. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Bye.